Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. And I've done over 500 of them now. And if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com and look under the previous interview or past interviews menu where you'll see all the previous ones organized in different ways. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the site and also a, a donation page, which explains other ways to support it if you don't want to use PayPal. And we really appreciate those who have supported it and are supporting it. We literally mean we couldn't be doing this if it weren't supported. I'd have to be doing something else. I still have a little bit of a cold, so I'm sounding a little bit froggy, but not as bad as I was last week. So my guest today is Georgie Y. Johnson. Welcome, Georgie. Georgie was born in Sheffield, England, and as she puts it, she has led a life of charm, intoxication, collision, and perpetual reawakening. So she's going to elaborate on what all those things mean. She's in Israel at the moment, which is her primary place of residence now. So Georgie sent me a page of uh, biographical information, but I think it would be kind of boring if I just read it. So I think I'll just let Georgie say it, and we'll get acquainted with who she is and uh, proceed from there. So Georgie, where would you like to start? Hi, Rick. Hi. (laughs) You know, I want to say something before I begin uh, talking about myself. Uh You know, Rick says, uh, you say, Rick, every week to people about donating if they can, if it's possible that you're doing this just based on donations. I also want to add my voice to that. It's really, really, really important to donate to things like Buddha at a Gas Pump and other online channels, because what's being offered there is like a whole online education in everything that's needed and, and on things which you can't really put a price on. What Rick does unconditionally to us contributing when, you know, we will go and spend money, you know, in a shop on uh, like nothing on a dress or on a, you know, we would invest in our, in our marketers in our, in our tobacco companies and in our consumer wants and needs. But this is something like, it's really, really, really worthwhile. So I really, really want people to hear that. I hear it every week, the same script. And I, and I really, really want to add to that. It's precious. I've been listening to, to your videos, Rick, uh, since you said you were going to interview me. Actually, I've been like all the time in the background, in the car and everything, totally binging. And it's so rich. It's so amazing. The diversity, your interviewing style, uh, your whole personality is, is like also a transmission that's what I wanted to say before we say anything else, in case I didn't get a chance to later on. Well, thanks, George. It's very sweet and kind of you. You know, my initial concept with this was just to do it and make it freely available and grow it to the point where the small percentage of people who ever donate to anything would become sizable enough that it would enable me to do it full time. So when I first started out, I was working a day job and sort of doing it in the evenings and weekends and stuff. And then gradually I was able to, I was freelance. I was able to diminish my day job as this grew. And then finally last year ago, March, I was able to drop it all together and devote my full attention to this as well as living life and you know the other things life involves. And people were pressuring me in the beginning, some people to monetize it and to charge for it and to run ads and all that stuff. And I just didn't really want it to have that vibe. I just wanted it to be freely available and to just let people who felt inspired to do so donate. And it's kind of worked out that way. So we're never going to get That's really, really beautiful because when you give totally out of your own freedom, it's something else altogether than giving from must-haves. 
yeah. there is this kind of appreciation movement and uh, it becomes unconditional in a way. So there, there is a, a, quite a wisdom behind that, but it requires that people take individual responsibility to appreciate the value and the work that's going in there. Well, thanks. Also, there's a, I should mention there's a great team of volunteers. My wife, Irene, is, is, spends as much time at this as I do. And, and mm. I spend a lot of time outside the interviews preparing for them and so on. And then we have Jerry and Larry and Angel and translators and a bunch of people doing video and audio post-production and all kinds of stuff. So, um, you know, it's just been this really sweet family of people that I've gotten to know over the years who chimed in to do this. And uh, it's a labor of love. And, um, you know, it, we, people all feel that they're making a contribution in some way to the world, which I think they are. Yeah. 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 All right. So let's get on to you. was <laughs> <laughs> There's that joke, you know, me, me, me. Okay, enough about me. What do you think about me? <laughs> yeah, so Georgie, uh, tell us about yourself. Yeah. Okay. Part of growing up has been involved realizing that not everybody is the same as me and not everybody is the same, uh, although everybody is com- completely the same. They're not really having the same experiences. When, when I first wrote uh, my first book, I Am Here, which is about three levels of perception, consciousness, which is the mind, and awareness, which we kind of designate to the heart and the feeling awareness, and emptiness, which we designate to the physical body and the physical dimension. When I first started writing that, I started from the... I assumed that everybody knew what awakening was, what it was to be conscious of consciousness. I kind of assumed that. And uh, it was in teaching it and people and I at a certain stage in the middle of teaching, I realized that a lot of people didn't actually get the kind of basic power of the now thing that consciousness is free of thought. Did you assume that even when you were very young or or just later on? So that's the thing. Yeah. My first memory ever was when I was two years old. I was in bed uh, in the afternoon for an afternoon uh, nap in England and I was just learning to talk. I was lying there and I was meant to go to sleep and I was looking at my body and noticing that my legs had grown longer and kind of marveling at at it (laughs) in proportion to the bed and not really wanting to go to sleep. But I was really pleased with this uh, new word that I'd learned, which was guitar, 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 guitar. And I was saying it again and again in my head. It was the era of Gary Glitter in the 70s, early 70s. And my father was cool. Your father was a music producer or something, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Later on, he he became a music producer. Yeah. So I was saying the word guitar, 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 until it had absolutely no relation to the musical instrument. And then I tried it also with my name. I didn't have that many words, but I started saying Georgie, 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 Georgie. I'm sure. And I think a lot of people must do this. I don't know. It sounds like you inadvertently discovered the principle of the mantra. Repeating yeah. a, a word and that doesn't so, actually have meaning, but that ends yeah. up having some kind of effect. Well, it started out with meaning because, you know, if guitar is an important word, then Georgie is an important word, obviously, because that's what everybody keeps shouting at me, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so I started saying Georgie, 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 Georgie until the name had absolutely nothing to do with me. And I lay there and thought, so who? I didn't think, who the hell am I? But I kind of wondered at that. Like, And I looked out towards the, the window where there was light coming through this, the afternoon light coming through the curtain with this question and and this consciousness came forward, my own consciousness came forward. And then 
I became conscious of the consciousness. And then I became conscious of the conscious of the consciousness. And it was like this kind of Jacob's ladder of light going jug, jug, jug. And this incredible feeling of home. Like literally as if out the window, like light after light after light, like reflecting mirrors. You know, right, when you have right. a mirror within a mirror within Two a mirror. mirrors facing each other. Oh. Yeah, but with feeling content. And then I fell asleep. There was also a bit where I thought about my mother downstairs, thought, mummy, 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 and who the hell is that woman making noise downstairs? You know, because it wasn't mummy anymore. But then I fell asleep. But this became a kind of a strategy to survive, like a reset. Months would go by with no oblivion, just living, you know, totally like just living. I don't remember any of it. And then there would be the next moment of kind of mini awakening, like walking to school in first grade and like, oh, the body is still healthy. That's absolutely amazing. And this kind of reawakening to this consciousness of consciousness and then vowing to myself never, ever, ever to again forget this consciousness, power, affirmation of who I am. And then, of course, forgetting it again. Over time, during the teenage years, it, when I was in trouble, I would reset the clock by going into the consciousness of consciousness of consciousness in the here and now in order to not take things too hard that were going on around me. It's interesting. And at this point, you probably didn't realize there was a world of spirituality and people had been thinking was, about yeah. this stuff for yeah. thousands of years. There was, uh, there was you, really you just no, cooked no it up context. on your own. No context for it. I don't, you know, that when I was little, there was two words which I felt incredibly ashamed to say out loud. And those two words were God and sex. <laughs> and it was like, I, I'd think about it, but sex I could understand. But God, it felt like this critical sense of shame. And it was like, but I kind of thought that nobody talks about it, but everybody's doing this. That's what you do when you're in trouble. Were you surrounded by atheists or something? Is that why you felt shame? No, 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 no. With God? Uh, interestingly, not. Uh, my father was an atheist. Uh, at least he said he was a nothing. And I remember having a quite a serious argument with him about what's a nothing, which would, which is kind of typical of me also today. But <laughs> to pick on people over like, you know, there's no such thing as nothing and nothing is something and all of this kind of things as a little girl. And my mother was uh, from a Catholic upbringing and quite very much mystically inclined as well, but quite lost in the world at that age. She had me very young. And uh, I think that her the kind of Catholicism which she was brought up in involved an enormous amount of shame mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Interesting. So you kind and of absorbed some of that. English Catholic is not like a French Catholic, you know. English Catholic is a minority. I mean, they used to say to her in school, uh, you know, Catholic child, because she was the only Catholic in the room. Sure, and Anglicans are the majority there, right? Yeah, yeah. and the Catholics not uh, discriminated a little bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, so this is interesting. I don't know. I wonder if people listening have how many of them have had something like what you described. I would get certain words in my head when I was young uh, and they would seem unusual to me that they didn't mean anything. It's funny. One of them was the word Hardeen, who it turns out was the name of the Houdini family. And I now have one of my best friends is named George Hardeen, who was his great right. Harry, Harry Houdini's great nephew. But I didn't meet him until a couple of decades later. But that word would come into my mind. It's the strangest yeah. thing. And, um, and, when, and when you met him, did you have a feeling that, that you were meant to meet him? Well... I, it turns out I initiated him into meditation in about 1971, and I didn't remember him very well. But then after I started Bat Gap, he discovered me again, and we got together, mm-hmm. and we've become best friends. So, but there's definitely some, connect, some connection there. But in any case, this whole thing of taking a word and repeating it is the mechanics of how to think a mantra, mm-hmm. although there's some subtle 
yeah. fine tunings yeah. to that. But it's interesting yeah. that you just kind of stumbled upon that. When you were repeating the word, you know, now that you're more familiar with the notion of transcendence and the mind settling down to deeper levels and all that, did, did that actually happen as a result of thinking a word that became meaningless repeatedly? Was you there know, some, then, some kind I, I was, of shift I was, I was, in consciousness it produced? I think it was meant to happen because of what I partly needed to, to, the role I needed to play, how I needed to express into the world. Because what really happened there for me back then, and it was only that first instance, after that I could just become conscious of conscious of conscious, I didn't need the word. But when I was that little, it was exactly when I was learning language, so something forever and ever was broken in the connection between the word and that which the word is supposed to signify. And if you think about the power of thought, because thoughts are made of words. So reality, in terms of thought, collapsed at that moment and was never ever anything other than language then became a tool, which didn't actually mean anything in itself, which means thought became a tool, but not something which is like inevitable or, uh, you know, if I don't think I will die. And I'm a writer, so it, it became it liberated something of the playfulness and the poet and all of those areas where uh, also the copywriter is it, all of those areas where you can be playful with language because the word is not tied to the meaning of the word. The, the word dog has no, absolutely no connection to the furry animal that yeah. we love so much. You know? Although, you know, I've heard this about Sanskrit and I think I've also heard it about what is the original language for Israel? It's not, it's Hebrew, of course, Hebrew. But I've heard that there's supposed to be a correlation between name and sound and the, ob and the object. So in other words, if you take the word for apple in Sanskrit, whatever that sound may be, the vibratory quality of, of that word is supposed to correspond to the vibratory quality of an actual apple. And they say that other languages are not so tightly correlated and perhaps hardly at all. Although if you look at languages, a lot of them derive from Sanskrit and there's some similarities. And there's supposed to be some significance to that in that if you can use the word in the right way and use its vibratory quality at a subtle enough level, you're supposed mm -hmm. to be able to have certain effects on the environment, possibly even mm -hmm. manifest an apple or some yeah. such thing. Yeah. But you know, what, what, what's important here is the vibra vibratory quality. Yes, yes. Because, you know, words, if a lot of people effects. are saying the word apple, apple, mm -hmm. apple, and they're saying it like apple is some kind of divine... Uh, uh, entity which you can take into yourself and can integrate through your whole system from the Garden of Eden till today. I'm taking it out of India and back to our own culture. But still, let's say apple is the whole deal here. Apple, apple. And people are going to churches and they're all saying apple, apple, apple together with such a reverence and such an awe. So they then, have an influence. Uh, then it's like concepts gain a life of their own by the investment of the vibration inside the, the vessel which is the word in a way. Is it, is it inherent? Is it always like that? Is the word like, you know, is, is the word om? Is that really the sound that God made when he created the universe? You know? uh, it's close because every baby says om but pretty early <laughs> on after they're born, you know. Yeah. So there is something very primal about that sound. But uh, that's for each one to find their own feeling connection with. You know what's more powerful in terms of the magic of words is the words that you're not allowed to say. So I was ashamed to say the word God. In, he, in, in uh, Israel, you know, in Jewish tradition, you do not say the, the main name of God, Y-A-H-W-E-H, -E because it gives it a power. It, by not saying it, a power is gained.
Uh, and that's interesting psychologically because when something is not spoken and it's only kept inside, you know, when I was later on, well, when let I me was just interject here. Yeah, yeah. That's the way it's Sorry. supposed to be with mantras too. Once you have exactly, a mantra, exactly. That's what it, I was it, coming to. Yeah, good. Go. You you say it then. So when, when, I, when I was 12, I, my mother took me, we were already living in Belgium after my parents got divorced and stuff. And my mother, in her, she began searching herself also uh, spiritually very much. Uh, she was born that way very much, kind of a mystic. And uh, she found this school of philosophy, which was a, a kind of middle class. Uh, in London, it was called the London School of Economic Science, which go figure that name. But it's also in Holland. And back then in the 80s, it was a, a school of meditation in a way where they didn't tell you it was that until you were two years in. But then they initiated you into meditation. And so when I was uh, a 14 or oh, 13, just 14, I was uh, initiated into meditation in this school. And that's when they gave me this mantra and forbade me to ever say it to anybody. And so for a while, I wasn't sure if everybody else had the same mantra or not until people started whispering and spelling it out and stuff. And then we realized we've all got the same one. Yeah, <laughs> that may be in some schools or maybe different ones in other yeah. schools. But the, the principle of it is that a mantra is you have to impart it orally in order for the person to hear it. But then once they get it, it's supposed to be kept on a subtler level because its function is not to do anything in the gross, but to take you from the level of thought, which is already subtle, to yet more subtle levels. And if you speak it out loud, it's, it sort of brings it out in the opposite direction. And so that's the principle of not speaking it out loud. Anyway, there's that point. But it's, very, it's, it's kind of really, really interesting because when you think of the things that we are afraid to speak out loud, it's often our most deepest pain or our traumas that which we are ashamed even to speak or even to think. And, and they also get a power when they're not expressed. So it's a tool which can be... Positive in, or negative. Yeah, it can go in different directions. Yeah, interesting. Um, so once you learned that meditation, did you practice it regularly? Uh, yeah, I, I was like a little bit the star child because I was in these groups with like... Adults. Grown-ups, you yeah. know, and... And I, and I found a context then. I found a context for this experience of because of, all the teaching there was about being in the now and there were classes in Sanskrit. And it was evening classes, but uh, there were, there, it wasn't all good there. There was a lot of pretense. You know, you would go in and people would be like po-faced, you know. You'd have to wear a skirt and have your forehead. Uh, and we called it the school face, you know, like a disentangled, so no emotion. Sort of cult-like. Actually, I think it was probably a cult. Because they were taking work for nothing, uh, unpaid labor, and uh, if you left, then you were excommunicated, and there wasn't one was allowed to speak to you anymore. And stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I was in the thick of it, and uh, then my father died uh, suddenly in England. Uh, they were, he was already divorced, and uh, their response was, "It's only his body that's gone." Mm -hmm. So it was kind of cold and emotionless response it was absolutely bloody ridiculous you know it's like it's not only his body that's gone i lost my father not only in the past but present future uh he wasn't going to see my children it was it was so uncontainable and, and unprocessable for a 14 year old to, to experience the death of an anyway absent father that uh only his body that's gone his body was long gone but my father had died and i had gone into this tunnel of uh uh shock of mortality and I spent months just contemplating death. And they come and say, only his body has died. It's meaningless. And uh, it came to a point with them where uh, 
I would say to them, you know, I will have, when I die, when I die, I'm going to have to uh, be accountable and responsible for whatever truth is true inside me. And what the school of philosophy says is totally irrelevant. That's not going to come with me, not when I'm on my deathbed. What, you know, what whoever says from the outside, I felt it so strongly, this edge of mortality. That, and, and so I kind of bombarded one of the teachers with this, and he looked at me and said, let it rest, let it rest. And that's like, so that was kind of it for me. You know? It's like, it, you know, some things you can't discuss anymore. It just, if there's no personal responsibility for the way and the school to, uh, some school or organization becomes the way then there's going always going to be that moment where you also have to leave that behind mm-hmm. yeah a lot of things are stepping stones for us you know and and sometimes people get stuck in a particular thing for decades and decades and they kind of stagnate there and yeah. um you know, and on the other, to the other extreme, you could be a dilettante, you know, just flipping from one thing to the next without going deeply into anything. But there's some kind of a proper balance in there, I think, yeah. you know, for ex- yeah. realizing when it's time to move on, having yeah. extracted all the benefit you can from a thing. Yeah. And, 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 you know, sitting there and learning Sanskrit and learning about Brahman and Atman and all of this as a, as a teenager, this gave me an enormous amount in conceptual thinking. And, uh, uh, and, 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 and I'd write essays in my regular school, English essays, and I would talk about the absolute and stuff. And the teacher was saying, OK, this is, you know, something's wrong here. Because <laughs> like, you're using consciousness like this. You're talking about the absolute. And, you know, this, they, he, he fed back to me that this is cultish. But on the, at the same time, my, my conceptual mind had developed, was able to develop way beyond uh, uh, what it could have done without this teaching. And, you know, the teaching is never the same as the people doing it. Yeah, well, in reality, um, ideally, there's a you walk your talk, but it doesn't always happen, you know. Yeah, yeah. You said an interesting thing in your book um, that I read last night, I think, which is that it's interesting how sometimes uh, some kind of non-dual realization or consciousness awakening uh, enlivens something in us such that you find people with relatively little education, at least in, in those sorts of areas, uh, being, becoming conversant with deep philosophical principles and even with quantum physics and stuff like that. It's like it awakens our familiarity with the subtler mechanics of nature and suddenly we find we're able to, to talk about those yeah. things. Yeah. It, it's, like, it's like there is this quality of genius. Of, uh, and, and when we let go of our belief in our own local thoughts, when there is that degree of surrender, this genius can move through and uh, express through whatever form is possible. Now, you know, one of the uh, people I had the pleasure to meet uh, in recent years was Russell Williams in Manchester, and he had absolutely no education. I'm not even sure that he could. Uh, 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 he's a teacher of Steve Taylor uh, and and the head of the he was head of the Manchester Buddhist Association in but he had no education at all. He was orphaned at a very young age and everything. He could speak so profoundly. And because he hadn't had this education, he spoke in the simplest possible terms about comfort, discomfort, relaxation, all from himself, all from direct experience, nothing learned. And he'd sit there in a suburb outside of Manchester, in a suburb of a suburb of Manchester, in this little house, you know, on the sofa with the jammy dodgers and a cup of tea. And this kind of, you know, Buddha of Northern England teaching. 
with such exquisite simplicity, but pure genius coming through, which Einstein says that's the biggest thing. If you can speak your genius with simplicity, yeah, that's it. Interesting. So, yeah. There was a story about a fellow named Trotakacharya, who was one of Shankara's four main disciples. And the other three disciples were giant intellects, and they would sit around working with Shankara on his commentaries on the Upanishads and things like that. And Trotaka was just a really simple guy, and he would be down at the river washing everybody's clothes and doing those kinds of tasks. And one day while doing that, he became enlightened. And the others heard this beautiful voice singing coming up from the river towards the ashram, singing this unknown melody and unknown meter and this beautiful devotional song. And it turned out to be Trotika. And what had happened was he had sort of awakened this fine level of intellect through his enlightenment and he then became this eloquent sage, you know, having yeah. just been basically yeah. a washer boy. <laughs> yeah. And there's a story in Judaism of uh, the Baal Shem Tov, oh, yeah. which uh, is very, very similar. They're all, they're all in, they're in Yom Kippur. They're all there praying and all of, you know, all of the religious men praying and saying all of the stuff on Yom Kippur, which is the holiest of holy days. And uh, the village idiot is there near the river and he's playing this flute and he's playing it and playing it and playing it. And uh, they all come running out and saying, shush, 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 it's Yom Kippur, it's Yom Kippur, you, you shouldn't be doing this. And the Baal Shem Tov comes and says, no, no, no. The sound he's making is going straight to heaven. This is the real thing. Nice. Because the kid was expressing the energy of the day. Yeah. And then there was the story of Christ. I mean, preaching, you know, in the temple when he was 14 years old or something and blowing everybody away with his wisdom. And they're thinking, you know, where did this kid get this? <laughs> yes, exactly. Because <laughs> it's always got to be from somewhere else, right? Yeah. <laughs> Never from here. <laughs> right. Anyway, so your dad died and this really hit you hard. My dad also died of an alcohol-related thing, so I can relate, although I was a lot older at the time. So then you left that society and you went to Oxford, right? Uh, probably it's thanks to them I got into Oxford because I, I had this uh, conceptual kind of approach to literature. and So I was kind of blessed because I wasn't really the kind of grade A student. Uh, and suddenly there I was, you know, accepted in Oxford. And it was a kind of like being lifted on a bird into a a kind of immunity in a way from effort. <laughs> Did you enjoy Oxford? Did you do well there? I very, very, very much enjoyed the awakeness of mind and the concentration of thought, intelligent, uh, creative, very traumatized people all in one place. Yeah, I like that. Somebody um, sent in a comment, which I think is worth reading here. It's Jennifer from Ventura, California, said, just a note to say that I had nearly identical experience as a child to that described by Georgie in her crib and in the early 70s as well. Just one in a series of mini awakenings throughout life. And then she said I was given a TM mantra at the age of four in 1974. Yeah, they, they teach children at about that age. So it's, it's interesting. I bet you. I mean, uh, I'm happy to hear that. I bet you a lot of children have all kinds of beautiful, mystical, profound experiences. Oh, I, yeah. You know, I bet you practically everybody listening can remember something or other. And, uh, you know, they tend to fade over time, and they also tend to be dismissed as a child's yeah. imagination or, you know, something like that. But we come in usually pretty open and, and I'm open. sure about it. <laughs> okay, so at Oxford you studied... Jungian psychology, the application of yeah. psychoanalytic and feminist literary theory. Yeah, so, so literature basically, but I took that chance on this excuse of English literature to really explore 
Carl Jung and Freudian analysis and Kant, because we were in the age of literary theory. So, so you can theorize anything if, in that and then make your own interpretation of Shakespeare or whoever based on that theory, Marxist theory, feminist theory. Interestingly enough, I always got very much involved with deconstructionism. And deconstructionism is exactly from that, the same thing as I talk about as that experience when I was two, that the word and the, and the object are not bound together. That there is no connection, in, you know, definite, absolute connection between a word and a thing, the sign and that which is signified. So it was already playing out there, a lot of what would show up later again. So in Oxford, they declare, you know, the author is dead. The deconstructionist uh, literary theorist declared the death of the author because the author doesn't exist, which is pretty much like, you know, I am nobody, nowhere, nothing. You know, it's just a text and the text is how you interpret it. And the text in itself is uh, totally fluid according to the generation or the conditioning of the readers. And the author is uh, hard to find. So are they saying that it really doesn't matter what the author had in mind when he or she wrote the thing? What matters is how you interpret it? Yeah, yeah, that school of thought was very much in opposition to the other school, which is saying the author meant this and the author meant that. Well, it seems to me an author has a right to actually try to say something and to mean it. And uh, if, <laughs> if, he's, if he's still alive, yeah, but when it's Shakespeare and he's being interpreted in the year 2000. Then know, who can say what he meant, yeah. yeah. All right, so then when you were 20, you arrived in Jerusalem in search yeah. of a midway point between the mysticism of the East and the decay yeah. of the West. You experienced a part of the earth that is charged with bliss, yet it was also a country where it seemed that nobody belonged. How is it that Israel is charged with bliss? It's the land. The land here has a very strong quality of uh, bliss in it. And I was in uh, especially Jerusalem, and I was uh, walking uh, barefoot through Jerusalem, uh, as one does. (laughs) <laughs> at that age and uh, I felt the connection between my feet and the ground and uh, the kind of miracle of everything that was around me at that time and uh, also the history like in the ground beneath my feet and again came one of these kind of awakenings and my heart burst open and I just went into this kind of it's not so much bliss as ecstasy and for for three weeks you know I went back to London and I was on the underground smiling like an idiot the whole time like i was so happy it was like it's like falling in love uh deeply unconditionally in love but with nothing just this massive opening of the heart created by the uh, quality of the light the feeling sensation of the earth uh and and particularly uh, around jerusalem they call it Jerusalem syndrome now. You know, they, they actually have a syndrome for that. People go to go there or they go, especially if they go down to the Dead Sea where the caves are of the Essenes. And sometimes people can get completely psychotic and they wear white and they walk off and go and you know, say, I'm going to live in a cave. Now. Just because of the influence of the place. The atmosphere. Oh. I think people listening to this can understand that. If you think of Arunachala, for instance, where everybody goes, where Ramana lived, you know, and, and places like that, places in the Himalayas, certain places are said to be just sort of charged with spiritual energy. And if you mm. go there, then you absorb some of that spiritual energy. So it's not mm. really an unusual idea for those listening. Yeah, yeah. And I felt very, very much the energy of Jesus, but not in any of the churches, but like so close to who I feel, my own sense of self, that it's almost like a strain inside the sense of self, like so intimate, so close to the heart, uh, that it was impossible to feel that there was any conflict at all uh, 
any logical conflict at all between Christianity and Judaism. When I was in that ecstatic state, it just felt like, you know, almost like an obligation to, to bridge that, uh, that lie of the split between uh, Judaism and, and Christianity. I don't think there's any logical conflict between the mystics of all the religions. If, they, if all the you know, really top grade A mystics <laughs> were to get together from all the different spiritual traditions and have a chat, they'd all be in complete agreement. It's just that people who don't experience what they were experiencing see the conflicts and the contradictions. Yeah, yeah. Again, we got that thing with the, the outer authority, like when you trust an authority outside of yourself rather than your own direct heart connection then it, it very quickly becomes kind of tribalistic and partisan and defensive and recruiting. Yeah, and that was, that's was that been one of the problems with every spiritual tradition is that administrator types take over and they don't have the yes. inner experience and so they get all into imposing outer authority and actually start to persecute those who claim to have some inner experience. Yeah. <laughs> the whole, whole yeah. thing is lost. And it, and, and it becomes all about the power and uh, often the, the teacher themselves gets relegated. Yeah, it seems to be a syndrome. Okay, yeah. so uh, you say, I'm, I'm reading bits of your bio here because it sort of prompts you along. Your life in Israel would include a compulsion for conflict. You worked as an investigative journalist exposing lies told about terrorism and weapons of mass destruction. Later, you would undergo a high-conflict divorce in which you were condemned by rabbinical courts as a fake convert, a homebreaker, and a naughty woman. And somewhere along the lines, I heard you mention you've had ten kids. Seven from my body, and uh, Bart has uh, Bart has three, three uh-huh. and uh, we have one together. So uh, number so- seven of me is together. So 10 altogether, yeah. yeah huh. Exactly. Yeah. That must have kept you busy on top of everything else. Yeah. How old is the, the youngest one now? She is uh, 12, nearly okay. 12. Huh. So you've lived a very active life, tons of responsibility. But as we'll continue to see as we have this conversation, life very dedicated to spirituality with all sorts of spiritual awakenings. And I think that sets a good example, you know, because... Anyone who feels that they're too busy or have too much responsibility yeah. to have a really spiritual life might find yeah. inspiration in what what you've been doing. Yeah. yeah, well, the thing is that because of the negative sides of the experience of the school of philosophy when I was a teenager, because there was a negative side, and also I was of that age of leaving home, which means kicking off against everything that was associated with home, and going to Oxford. So I really kind of put all of that away. And the spirituality began to show up in terms of dream analysis and creativity. And and I, I kind of, I still believe totally and absolutely believed in God and had my consciousness reset thing, but it didn't have a context in it and it didn't have a practice, not at all. And uh, I would never even dream of going to a psychologist. That was for losers. I became quite arrogant. And I and uh, and the journalist, uh, when I went to Jerusalem, despite this ecstatic experience, I was there as a, on a fact-finding mission to, uh, which involved going around the refugee camps and the uh, uh, East Jerusalem, where uh, which is the Arab side of Jerusalem, the religious Jewish side, the secular Jewish side, all the different the settler side, all the different aspects of the conflict just in Jerusalem, which was amazing intellectually to me. It was absolutely amazing that this country didn't exist for a thousand and what were not years. And it was prophesied that the Jews would come back. And lo and behold, this horrific, unbelievable thing happens, which is the Holocaust. And then here is this country 
with this incredible, like it says there, the not belonging, like nobody really belonging, but everybody comes from somewhere and everybody with a story and everybody with a tragedy. So for the first time in my life, I could talk about the death of my father without everybody blushing and killing the conversation because everybody had a dead somebody there, which was like oxygen. You know, I can be myself. You know what I mean? <laughs> Interesting. So you say in your bio that everything you went through there reawakened your deeper purpose, the exploration of the mysteries of consciousness. So inside the investigative journalism, I built up quite a big ego structure connected with saving the world because I was using a lot of cannabis and drinking an enormous amount of coffee. And like I can tell like psychologically now, I can actually quite soon afterwards, I saw that I was actually projecting my own parents' divorce onto my life. And that was now coded as the end of the world at the same time that it was kind of psychic. Uh, in, the, in that my son was getting to an age when my parents divorced and I got more and more psychotic with a combination of cannabis and coffee that I have to save the world against the threat of non-conventional terrorism. But at the same time, it was slightly psychic because this was in 1998 and you know I have articles that I wrote was predicting a twin attack on America from bin Laden. You know what I mean? And with, with the World Trade Center as one of the targets. Wow, you so actually it's predicted like, that. Yeah, because it's according to the terrorist patterns also of, of what had been going on before that. But the emotional content of it was absolutely, my ego structure is collapsing. I became terrified to be a mother because it was like, if the kids come near me, I'm going to inflict the same pain on them that was inflicted on me. And I would just get this crippling anxiety attacks, like my stomach is, how do you say, imploding and I'm having a heart attack. And I went to a doctor. Probably had a lot to do with all the coffee and cannabis, too. Oh, absolutely. And it was suddenly the cannabis was very, very strong. It's this kind of skunk cannabis. I haven't touched it for a long while, but it became like not a soft drug anymore. And it was morning till night. That was the lifestyle. It's amazing uh, you could do anything. I I was buzzing, 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 buzzing. My whole mind, it was all in the head, all buzzing, 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 reaching out to forget information about where the threat was, where this, what this, imagining scenarios. But I imagined scenarios and then I would actually begin to experience them, like being nerve gas attacked and stuff. Wow. Like when driving on, on a, in a traffic jam, I would imagine what would it be like? How many people would get killed if there was a nerve gas trail on the back of this exhaust pipe of that car? And, and I, I, I get these visions of everybody dying gassed and it's Jews and gas, right? So this is like something that people should be honest about, you know? And uh, then I would begin kind of salivating and feeling utterly and totally like I was being nervous gas attacked in that moment. I was utterly out of balance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Cannabis is not legal in Israel, right? You were just smoking it. Like everywhere else, it's becoming legal little by little. But it is a drug which, uh, despite the legality, you know, we make DMT naturally in our own brains. And like with any drug, if you take it from the outside too much, if you abuse it, you stop making it yourself. Which means that when you start to come off it, the brain doesn't know how to produce its own uh, spirit molecule. Right, it's, forget- it's lost, the- it's atrophied. It takes time to, to open up, to, to heal that, uh, the neurochemistry again. Yeah, that's why I totally lost interest in drugs once I learned to meditate. It's like, oh, yeah. this, all yeah. this nice inner bliss and I'm not even smoking anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Interesting. So how did you snap out of that? Uh, it snapped spiral? out of me. Yeah? It snapped out of me. You know, it got to a place where if I smoked a joint, I would go into immediate full-time proper anxiety, panic, immobilization, and uh, I had little children. So you just couldn't and touch I, the stuff anymore. We were in Cambridge, and I remember I had a puff on a joint, and I was walking through Cambridge, and... It was like an LSD trip. The grass became too green and the sky became too blue. It literally brought me to my knees. 
thank God in England there was a, a decent general doctor who had a lot of respect and wasn't just pushing psychiatric drugs, who had a lot of compassion. So I took some simple Prozac, which I immediately felt like it kind of numbed half my brain and my creativity. So after a short while, after it kicked in finally, then after a short while, it began to be only every other day. And it would be like a live brain, dead brain, a live brain, dead brain, according <laughs> to whether I've taken the pill or not. Mm. And could begin to wean off it. But what came after the anxiety was exactly that. Without the, the DMT function in the brain, I went into this place of total apocalyptic depression. I took down all of the web campaigns, all of the ended the newsletter on the on terrorism, uh, broke all connection, and there was nothing. It was like this. It was almost worse than the anxiety. This sense of depression, of senselessness, of meaninglessness. Let me ask you a question. What do you think is going to happen to societies which are now legalizing cannabis in Canada, in the U.S., and various other places? It's been legal in Holland for a long time. Do you think it's going to have a, a long-term deleterious effect or is there some, or does the, the good outweigh the bad or, or what? I just wonder, you know, after a decade, how mm -hmm. we're going to look at people. Perhaps there'll be some people who just indulge heavily as people will in any drug and those people will just be kind of stupefied and others will just use it occasionally and, and they'll be fine. But yeah. what do you think about the wisdom of the legalization? I think it will, short term, uh, there will be a kind of spike in uh, nervous breakdowns and psychosis. Long term, it will be just like Holland and everybody will begin to take individual responsibility for their own regulation and their own habits. And some people need it a little bit, especially uh, medicinally. It's got a huge advantage. Uh, it gave me some significant things in the opening of experiential memory, the memory of how things felt. It really opened my right brain at a certain stage. We're in an age where people have to start taking responsibility for their own health and their own, whether it's alcohol or whether it's drugs, whether it's legal or illegal, it doesn't matter whether it's ayahuasca. They need to start to develop a sense of self-abuse when they are abusing a substance, when, they are, when it's taking them in a bad direction. Yeah. All roads always lead back to that. And whatever you say, I mean, it's certainly not good that so many hundreds of thousands of young people, or many of them black young men, are sitting in prisons because they had a little bit of marijuana or, you know, sold a little bit or something. I mean, it's ruined a lot of lives, so mm. that, that's got to stop. And not only that, you know, 50% of, I read this statistic recently, that 50% of uh, Americans have or had have a family member in prison. Yeah. So this is having a direct effect on the conditions, the feeling of freedom, the feeling of well-being, the freedom of being allowed to exist in freedom on a whole population. It's a kind of slavery that's going on. Yeah, I think because we have if your higher... brother goes to prison, you're in prison as well. Sure. And the whole principle of be afraid, you know, be afraid, be afraid. You know, you're not okay. You know, you can be put away. This principle is holding, you know, fifty percent, and that's not counting the ones who are in prison. Yeah, I think we have the U.S. has the highest per capita incarceration rate of any country in the world. I think it's worse than China. Anyway, it's just, big business, isn't it? It is. A lot of the prisons are private and people are making money off them. Okay, so how did you snap out of this? You, you started to take... Yeah, so you, I was in this apocalyptic depression and yeah. I was just walking around Cambridge. And uh, at a certain stage, I walked into the central town and uh, there was a bunch of South African black school children singing from Soweto. Desert dust on their clothes in a way. And they were singing with such an innocence and such a purity, this song. 
And I stood there and it was like my heart just burst open and I started to cry and cry and cry. And after that, something started to come to life again on a completely different note from what had been before, much more authentic, much less arrogant. And I began working with smell, with essential oils, and uh, just massaging people's feet, because it was the only thing that took away the anxiety and the depression was to be of service to somebody. So especially my worst enemies, I would grab their feet, and you know, people I didn't like, and, and treat them with essential oils and, and massage their feet. It was a bit Jesus-like, but it was really, really, really helped calm down and make a turnaround out of this, uh, this place of total burnout and existential crisis. Oh, that's nice. I think you're the first person I've ever interviewed who had a big boost from essential oils, or who at least told me about it. The smell, the smell of them yeah, brought me back to yeah. mind. Just the smell of them. Sure. Amazing I mean, smells. So pure. A question came in from Dan in London, wondering, do you have any advice for raising children in a way that can infuse them with a spiritual wisdom or openness, particularly in the younger years where children are so open, but when it's difficult or not appropriate to have spiritual philosophical conversations? A spiritual or philosophical conversation will be initiated by every child. We have to be ready and open to receive it. You know, it's not teaching them anything. We have this, this misconception that we educate our children that we have what to give them. It's the other way around. They come, you know, there's an evolution going on. These children are born as living masters. And as soon as they begin to talk, they begin to transmit what they can in simple language. And uh, if they say they see colors, if they say that, that uh, they saw a dog in their room and a dog wasn't there, respect their experience, respect their feelings, ask questions, explore them, be interested, affirm what they experience, no matter how crazy it might sound. That's my advice with children. They are amazing. This is why I had so many. Each one is a total <laughs> miracle and each one different, each one with a whole new set of skills and wisdom and awesome, awesome. They're all my teachers, all of them. Did you have any of your children that were much more difficult than the others? And would that Probably, if you had, you would say that they were no less your teachers than the easier ones because difficult situations can often be our greatest teachers. Because they went through quite a horrible divorce, they all went through difficult stages. And they all came out amazing, having been allowed and safe enough and held enough to be able to kind of, one of our children, he absolutely wrecked the house. We went out and we came back. The house was, the chairs were upside down. All the plates were broken. The house was completely destroyed and he would never talk. He would just not talk. He would just say yes or no. And I'm bored. That was his whole vocabulary. And uh, I thought there was no hope. And I said to Bart, what shall we do? And he said, we, he will heal. He will heal. Bart is my partner. Now, at a certain stage, he was playing uh, computer games, playing computer games, and uh, his stuff got hacked so many times, he had, had a complete and total rage attack on that. And then he went upstairs and started banging on the piano, and then he was banging for the whole summer, bang, bang, bang on the piano. But then by the end of two months, he was playing Rachmaninoff and Mozart and this, and he had his first piano lesson, and the teacher nearly collapsed, and he began to talk because he was playing the piano, because he was expressing this quality of music, and he, his physics went, uh, and mathematics, and all the best grades, and he became this beautiful, sensitive, wise, meditating, yeah, 
<laughs> studying mindfulness right now and psychology in, in Jerusalem individual. And he was one of the most difficult ones. That is so interesting. That is a really cool story. I'm glad I asked you that question. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's inspiring. Yeah. I had a girlfriend many, many years ago who was a school teacher, uh, teaching, you know, grammar school. And there was this kid that was um, the real problem child. They didn't know what they were going to do with him. They they thought he might have to leave school and so on and so forth. And uh, somebody, I don't know whether it was my girlfriend or somebody else, had the idea that he was actually just too smart for the for the grade he was in. So they skipped him a grade, you know, so that he was actually with much more advanced kids. And then he blossomed. He was just bored yeah. and frustrated. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, our school, our education systems are terrible. The whole very philosophical foundation of putting knowledge into kids' heads as if their heads are empty. And uh, the, the two smart kids get lost. The, the kids with a different kind of brain. Uh, we've got a few dyslexics who are incredible conceptual thinkers and poets. But there's no recognition of them whatsoever. Just shaming and... Uh, it's, at least in Israel, it's really, really, really not good. The best you can do is get a democratic school, which is a kind of opt-out you pay for of the system so mm. that damage isn't done. Yeah. Okay, so we spent about an hour, although we had some downtime with that technical difficulty, and we've been talking about you and jumping around a little bit in terms of our subject matter, but I think we're covering yeah. a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah. But there's a whole thing we want to talk about, which is what you do now, which is non-dual therapy and the whole interesting discussion about non-dual qualities and all. So I want to make sure we have plenty of time to really go into that. Yeah. So let's let's go into that. But if there's anything critical in your whole story of your life that we haven't yeah. covered, we should yeah. weave, weave that in also at some point, perhaps yeah. as a segue into this discussion. Yeah. Okay. So let's speed it up a little bit. So after the nervous breakdown, uh, I, I was ready to do anything rather than go back to that hell, which is anxiety. And, uh, very egoic, you know. I didn't give up drugs. Drugs gave up me. And then anything rather than go back to hell. And so I started going to a, a spiritual psychologist. And she referred me to uh, these healing courses of uh, Bart, who was later become my partner. The very first time I met with her, I was in t- anxiety again. would come back to Israel. And I was sitting the next day with the children in anxiety in the grass and I felt her connecting with me and there was such a transmission of joy and okayness remotely it's like my whole reality just transformed for about an hour and I could breathe and free of anxiety for about an hour so the next time I went to her I said I want to learn what you know how to do I want to study this you know it's like because this is it's like finding something which you always knew and I was always very intuitive and always following my feet but I never had found that such a tangible kind of experience that this is possible to, through the felt sense, this kind of remote healing thing. And so in studying these spiritual psychology courses, the next stage came, which was deeper than awakening. And that was this kind of unconditional opening of the heart in which the kind of, it was like the heart had been so blocked and so closed, maybe my whole life. And at a certain stage, it just splintered open. And there was this uh, sense of satori or just unconditional love for everybody, everything, just ongoing, 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 ongoing for a couple of months in which I was totally functional. You know, I was thinking, am I going psychotic here? But no, I was totally functional with the children better than ever, totally clear minded. Every time I put the experience down, it would come back again. 
with these kind of great blessings of like blankets of peace coming down and uh, something which I'd never, ever experienced before in my life. It got to a point where I was hanging out the washing in the garden and I felt it stop. And I felt, you know, unconditional love for Osama bin Laden and all, <laughs> unconditional love for every fucker on the planet. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and then suddenly it stopped. And I thought, why has it stopped? Like, what's this? What do I, like, I met a wall in my heart and then I realized that I'd come up against myself. And my heart just closed. And that was really where that part, that experience ended. And only about six, seven years later, there would be a third process, which was much more to do with the body, which uh, I call the emptiness process, where a lot of the deep fears and self-rejections and deep inner splits and blocks to unity and subtle unconscious conditions on life began to fall away. So because of this, in our teaching, we, we make it like there's three layers of development. And people can organize it how they want, but I think this is really a good way. you know. So awakening, we use that word for the awakening of consciousness from mind, from thought, identification. Enlightenment with a little e, for the liberation of the heart, the liberation of the heart from the conditions and the contractions which have kept it in uh, no, no passage through, in a way, to the other side, that have kept it limited. And then emptiness, which is the liberation of the body from basic subconscious, unconscious fears, from the fear of death, from the belief that the body is physically separate from the planet. And uh, it's those final rifts when which we kind of separate ourselves without even being aware of it from uh, the outside, what we see as the outside world. It sounds very much like Adyashanti's head, heart, gut model, you know. It does. And, you know, when I wrote I Am Here, I didn't even know what non-duality was. It discovered it later. And it was a lot of it was kind of guided, but from a guide that very much said, speak it in your own right. I would later, later on found out who he was. But uh, and then a year too late, a year or two later, it felt like the world is so not ready for this I Am Here thing by then. It was such a kind of how the hell ever, what am I on, you know. And uh, then I discovered Adyashanti, and actually this isn't so, like, uh, 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 off the wall, you know. But by then I'd gone through a whole process of reducing it down to, come on, it's head, heart, and body. Head, heart, and body, that's all it is. It's thoughts, feelings, and physical sensations. Really having to simplify it, because when I first started teaching, it was like, what the hell is she talking about? Especially for non-English speakers. You know? yeah. Now, you just said something interesting, that there was some guide, like a muse, that was... Um... Yeah. Channeling this stuff through you or something? Yeah. What's that about? You know, all you my life. Now, follow, now you know who I, he is or who he was. Yeah. Well, all my life I followed uh, still small voices and intuitive voices. I never had a problem with voices in my head. Even when the psychiatrists had me and they said, Do you hear voices in your head? I said, What don't you? You know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so following guidance for me is very, very automatic. But this particular guide would be, be coming very precisely with indications about this whole thing of consciousness and awareness head and the, the sense perception of consciousness through the center of the head and the awareness which is much more how things feel feeling atmospheres and the third part which is here the body and i asked him at a certain stage to show me who he is give me his face and uh, he showed up as an eagle and flew straight past i thought oh, okay that, yeah, that's nice you know but then he, he said i could call him pappy so we would talk about him as pappy and then one day I was uh, scrolling through Facebook and Nisargadatta showed up. Oh. And it's a quote where he's literally talking about consciousness and awareness and prior to being. 
So I began looking into Nisargadatta and it was like, oh my God, this is absolutely and totally him. Is this you? Yes, that's me, but it's not me. <laughs> so I don't know, you know, I've got no claim to absolute realities here at all. I really have nothing to do with absolute realities and facts and, and no possession, no claiming, claiming him, nothing. But this is what yeah. it went. Oh, it could be. Why not? And I can feel him like, you know, like Jesus, you know, there is this. Uh, I can even feel the kind of disappointment that he that it sounds a bit arrogant. But there was this hope that he would become nothing but eternal source when he died. And he became a whole universe called Nisargadatta. And he didn't get free of himself. And I think that was a bit of a disappointment. Yeah, perhaps just because he was anticipating something else. But, uh, you know, yeah. God had other plans. Um, it could be that that's how it is that we are in the universe and the universe becomes more and more free. Each one of us giving birth to each one of us, giving birth to each one of us. It could be like that. I, have, I like that idea. I have a feeling that's the way it works. I mean, with Ramana, too, um, there are so many people who have had visitations from Ramana and messages from Ramana and visions yeah. and so on and so forth. That It, it kind of seems like, he, and even people like Pamela Wilson, who had never heard of him before and then had this yeah. experience when she was young yeah. and then later on discovered yeah. him. And other several people I've interviewed had a similar thing. Yeah. They, they hadn't heard of the guy and then they, had, they yeah. saw him and then later they saw him in an actual book. Russell Williams, Russell Williams in Manchester, after he was enlightened by a horse, literally a horse looking into his eyes, and he saw himself in the horse and himself as the horse. After that, he went telling all of these Christian priests and everything, and they all said, oh, no, it's blasphemy, it's rubbish, you know, you're you're, you're totally off, and he didn't have any context for it whatsoever, and he began to go into despair because he felt like he was this lone island of incredible self-realization, but no one to talk to about it. And uh, he prayed. He said, please, God, help me with this. And he got this vomp face of Ramana. Interesting. He had no idea who this Indian guy is. Right. Later on, he matched the face to, the, to, to a picture that somebody gave him years later. Uh, and uh, it used to stand on his shelf there in Manchester. Fascinating. Is he still alive? No, he died a, a year and a half ago. Oh, I missed him. Um, <laughs> but anyway, that's cool. He was I mean, 96 or something. Uh-huh. Quite uh, ready to move on for a while. Yeah, I mean, certainly the New Agers talk about ascended masters, and I've you know interviewed people who say they're talking to Mary Magdalene and Jesus and so on. So I keep an open mind. I mean, who knows? Maybe you know all these enlightened beings don't just sort of melt into the into the oneness and you know without like a drop into the ocean, but maybe they retain some kind of structure or functional capacity yeah. and continue to guide humanity from whatever realm they're dwelling in yeah maybe their realm they're dwelling in is this realm it's just not visible yeah yeah but yeah we can talk Mm -hmm. about realms because obviously there's a lot right here that isn't visible exactly we are so arrogant with our eyes and ears and noses you know yeah you think if we can't see it you know like dark matter you think if you can't see it then we call it dark well that kind (laughs) of in a way that shifts us into our discussion about non-dual therapy because you talk about non-dual qualities or qualities of consciousness and what we've just been discussing for the last five or ten minutes is beings who have attained this unity consciousness and yet there are certain qualities and functions which are retained not only when they're in a human body but apparently after they've dropped the human body and it might sound like an oxymoron to speak of non-dual qualities because qualities implies relative 
stuff and non-dual you know you think of sort of a oceanic plane wholeness oneness with no differentiation but i think we can resolve this paradox in in the course of our conversation as we go forward here so let me send it back to you to to get us started so if you're talking about paradox you know the very word non-dual non-duality is what is that it's something that defines itself by what it's not yeah in fact you know, it's a, it's something that's, that you know, what's not rick mm-hmm. what is not rick you know how do we find not rick in the universe yeah yeah you know everywhere in the universe we look we find rick we find rickness there is no non-rick so in a way non-duality is a kind of the very word is a cone which I really love about it. It's a cone, but what it's really, the, the one word which is meaningful inside this cone, non-duality, is duality. Mm. Isn't it? Yeah. And when we look to the, to, to the forms, every single form in creation, it's got a north pole, a south pole, it's got a left hand, a right hand, it's got two eyes, it's got up and down, it's got, its leaves are separating, branching, into splitting into two into two cells are dividing you know that first embryo becomes two cells and then becomes four cells and then becomes eight cells it's all about division and duality so there is this something which is in the splendor of everything created in our physical universe which is all that we can see and know as creatures of this physical universe it's all duality in naturalness Harmony, symmetry, beauty, balance. But I think what some people mean when they say non-duality, and they sometimes take, you know, they refer to physics as as a metaphor or as an actual example of it, is that uh, you know, in, in on more manifest levels, we have all this diversity. But then, if we go more and more fundamental into nature's structure we get down to simpler and simpler more unified uh, realities and then ultimately even the, the the very first sprouting of diversity folds back into a uh, unsprouted or unmanifest state which physics might call the unified field or spiritual people might call pure consciousness and they say, okay, well, that ultimately is what's real, that non-dual state. All of this um, emergence of properties and diversities is um, less real in some way. Yeah. You know, it's more um, yeah. so, illusory so you, what, you, in some way. You see way. what's there? There's a hierarchization. There is. This is more real, that's, this is less real. That's the way it's described. Yeah. Yeah. And the splitting. Mm-hmm. This is the true state, this is the false state. Yeah, that's this, the bias that, this is that comes across. This is pure duality. This is pure, you know, either or. This is, this is right, this is wrong. This is saved, this is unsaved. In terms of physics, what's expressing from the unified field of emptiness? I would call it emptiness, not consciousness. The moment what is emerging is perceived or felt if it's seen consciously, you've got subject-object. You've got the one that sees it and, the, and the, 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 the vision which is seen. If it's felt resonantly through awareness, you've got an experience. And you've got an experiencer. So non-duality, the unified field of emptiness, is always the, the one which is able to experience. The one which is able to perceive. 
the one which is able to, doesn't matter what, to get drunk in a pub or to have the most sublime meditational experience of a golden Buddha. It's the same one. And it's the same one expressing through all of these different forms of love and peace and purity and innocence and naturalness and suffering. It's the same one suffering in billions of different forms. The same one. Suffering and enjoying. Yeah. The same one lost in the ignorance. Um, uh, It's not separable. So at least from how we understand it, non-duality is about the wisdom of non-separation. It's not about an alternative state, and it's not about a club. It's just an excellent word to bring forward the paradox of there being ultimately no duality between existence and non-existence, which is totally quantum physics. You know, the particle is blipping in and out. It's here and not here, here and not here, here and not here. It's a particle, it's a wave. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's very true to direct experience. You know, consciousness is a flicker, flickering. It's blipping in and out. Awareness is more of a wave, but anything, even the exp- when I'm aware that I'm aware, yeah, that awareness that I'm aware of, that field of awareness, it's got a subtle vibration. It's a form. It's a subtle form of vibration, which it means it's not who I am ultimately. I'm prior to that, even the experience of pure awareness, perhaps. Yeah, I think what you're saying is in complete accordance with what the writers of the Upanishads and these great texts were saying. And in fact, they said things such as, you know, that alone is and thou art that and so on and so forth, referring to this non-duality. And all of this is that. Yeah. So they're just and saying... And that's exactly it, isn't it? You can feel the thatness in every single piece of mud and every moment of perception and every touch with the physical. You can feel the thatness. It, it, it's really not excluding anything, but it is accelerating something. There is a quickening of vibration when thatness connects to thatness. When that inside me connects to that inside you, there's a quickening of vibration in which things become kind of either chaotic or very painful or clarified, but there's an evolution that starts to happen towards harmony. There's two nice little themes there. One is that if any of this has somehow become something other than that, then that couldn't be non-dual because it must be off in some corner because something has emerged and become separate from it, so it couldn't really be all-inclusive or all-embracing. So all of this must be that. Yeah. If that's, yeah. un, if that's exactly. non-dual. Exactly, but, but of course people like to kind of to fundamentalize everything. So you get people who say there is no other. There's no such thing as other, there is only that. But there is arising in the thatness the experience of otherness. And that is such an important experience in creation. Of course, we're not, we're not limited to the physical dimension, the created physical dimension, but there is ecstasy in the otherness there is bliss there is a reunion there is nirvana is in the otherness in the experience of otherness it's it beginner's mind is in the otherness when you can look at the world we're totally fresh 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 you see all of these people inside their thoughts inside their heads and on their phones and each one in their own bubble here and you look at it it's like other <laughs> And yet it's that. And that's a non-dual experience. You know? <laughs> well, you know, if they insist that there is no other, 
then it, it kind of belies their own experience because if you take a hammer and threaten to pound their thumb with it, then you know there's definitely an aversion to that experience. You know, it's not like oh, it doesn't matter because it's all one. It's like no, I don't want that experience. Yeah, and that's a bit like you know, it's only his body that's dead. Yeah, yeah. It is only it's his body that's dead. But what the hell is death? People have many, many. I think it's Jung said that people will go to vast lengths to escape the mystery of their own souls. They have genius ways, including spiritual ways, to deny, negate, not to feel what is anyway here happening. And this is splitting inside the psyche again and again and again. So if we move to non-dual qualities, when people have experiences of awakening or enlightenment or moments of self-realization, you'll hear some teachers, and you've got the whole array of them on uh, BatGap, who talk about this profound peace. And others who will say, all there is is love. It's just love. Everything is love. Love, 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 love. Others who will be very much teaching about freedom. Others about the now, the now, the now. Uh, People are talking about different things, different experiences. They're talking about different qualities which became the foreground of their liber- during their particular liberation. So, you know, Eckhart Tolle, for example, was very much in conflict, in a war inside his head. And so when he awakened, he had this experience of sublime peace. But somebody like I was at that stage when I was in a very deep conflict inside the heart, in a way a loyalty conflict between my mother and father, when I awakened... When I, when in that experience, of, uh, which is more like a enlightenment with a little e, there was this kind of sense of unconditional love. Uh, in the emptiness experience, there was this sense of freedom, like absolutely mind-blowing freedom and unity, two qualities. So these, these qualities, love, peace, uh, joy, freedom, innocence, purity, okayness, uh, uh, equality. Equality. These qualities are all from another dimension of our experience from those places where we suffer. Now, I'm not talking about people who pretend they are loving all the time and people that think you have to be peaceful. I'm not talking about complexes where we pretend to be something like behavioral therapy of the psyche in order to try and get a bit of that, like at the School of Philosophy where everyone had to be, you know, disentangled. (laughs) Yeah. These qualities are what's there when everything else breaks down. When everything falls apart in that trauma, in that shock, when everything is raised away, meaning at the end of our lives, when the psyche is gone and when the mind is gone, these qualities still are there. They're never taken away. They never get broken. They never get injured. They're in unlimited supply. And they feel different. You know, the feeling quality of peace is a whole other dimension from the feeling quality of love. And love, you know, is very different from the feeling quality of care. You know, care is not love. The whole universe, the whole of nature is caring for itself. There is this incredible, sublime, unconditional, spontaneous care in the universe and in nature. And it's not the same as this love, which is another vibration again. So that's what we're talking, that's what we talk about when we're talking about qualities. And these qualities have a tremendous healing effect on the psychology, on the psyche of an individual and the environment. It's interesting. So you're, you're sort of saying that the predominant 
experience that a person has before awakening might determine the predominant uh, experience they have after awakening. And I thought of an example while you were saying that. Let's say there's a group of people and one of them is really hungry and one of them is really cold and one of them is really tired. They haven't slept in a long time. And then the whole group gets to move into a nice palace. And in the palace, there's plenty of food and it's nice and warm and there's a comfortable bed. Okay, so the guy who was hungry is going to think, oh, food, that's, a, that's what the palace is about. And the other guy is going to think, oh, you know, warmth, it's so nice and warm in here. And the other one's going to think, oh, comfortable bed, now I can sleep. So they all experience the palace in predominantly yeah. different ways because yeah. of the preconditions before yeah. they moved yeah. in. Yeah. You know, I remember in uh, Sand in Italy, Moro. Maurizio? No, not Maurizio, uh, oh. Moro, an Italian philosopher, lovely guy who uh-huh. studied with Nisa Gadata. He asked me if it was cold in, in, inside or if he needed a sweater, he had to go and uh, give a lecture. And I told him that depends how warm your body is. <laughs> and he just cracked up laughing because in that moment there was this like a you know relativity of all things it's really interesting to look into because it could be also that the way in which we're suffering is because that particular quality is being mastered as a human being in this psyche so it's not just an effect that we feel peace after this extreme conflict we may have come here to learn to experience the in-depth in detail experientially of what it is to be in a conflict, to be in a duality of war versus surrender, to have to fight or to have to surrender. That's what, I, that's what we would say is the duality of peace, because in our teaching, each quality is associated with a duality, which is now not natural duality, but psychological duality. So peace, for example, is not in a competition with war. It's not on that level at all. It's not in opposition to war. You can't make peace. You can't orchestrate it from above and stick it on a people. Uh, Where I am right now is a living proof of that. But there is peace here, spontaneously arising in every moment between Arabs and Jews and Jews and Jews and Arabs and Arabs. It's a very, very peaceful country, actually, despite the news. So each quality... It has an associated contraction, and the contraction is around two poles of a, of a psychological duality. So in the case of peace, it's between the feeling that, that you're fighting a war, the sense of war, being at war, and the sense of having to surrender, of being surrendered. And these two are in a conflict with each other, but the peace is always there, whether we're on a battlefield or whether we are surrendering. And the more we're able to rest back in the peace, the more we're able to dance according to what's actually needed between this duality of, of, of war and surrender in order to support the general well-being of the whole. So the message here is that these non-dual qualities like love, peace, freedom, unity, non-duality, they're not in competition with another opposite. They're not on that level. They are a, a degree behind that with an immediate healing impact on that. So when you bring the energy of peace to a conflict, something in the conflict, just because the energy of peace is allowed to be there at the same time as the conflict, so something in the conflict begins to awaken and resolve by itself. And maybe if you bring the energy of peace to somebody who's caught in compulsive surrendering, then the energy of uh, action or needing to fight a war, to stand for something will come forward. You see? So... There is some kind of connection which is really worth exploring between these qualities, which we talk about as non-dual teachers so often, 
and the contractions, the places we suffer, the places where we are very stressed and in conflict with inside ourselves, in the psyche or in the ego structure or in the personality structure. In one page of your book, you say non-dual qualities are evolutionary in the sense that they are not yet freely manifested through physical dimension. The physical dimension is evolving to let their light shine through. To say it another way, we're in a collective process of non-dual healing. So would it be fair to say that deeply, fundamentally, there's a vast repository of beautiful non-dual qualities such as peace and love and all these things, but they are just um, not percolating up clearly in most people's experience and therefore in society. They're bottled up down there. So the whole process of spiritual awakening is a process of removing the obstructions or the obstacles kind of like the, the the sun is always shining but if there's clouds in front of it then the sun yeah. doesn't reach the ground exactly yeah exactly except that they're not very deep 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 down they're absolutely everywhere around us all the time the only thing is that we're not conscious of them and for some reason we're so traumatized that we resist them we associate them with trauma so we have to be clever and we have to identify and we build ourselves a personality which is disconnected from these qualities. And then we pretend these qualities because we miss them, which disconnects us still further. They are everywhere. They're in, you just look at your dogs in your house. They are just oozing non-dual qualities. You know, if you look towards trees or to flowers or to the sky or even to those places in our regular normal day where we spend consciously, we're awake when we're thinking about how we're suffering and when we think about a problem, but the rest of the time we don't even give it appreciation. And that quality is there. So take a family, for example. The family, they've all got an issue, you know, Shula doesn't like Peter and Peter doesn't like Shula's husband and the mother doesn't like the daughter-in-law and the, the father. And so they all have their thing going on and they're all entangled like this and they're all entangled in webs of suffering. Then something happens, you know, Shula's got cancer. And suddenly there's this unity and suddenly there's this love and even the qualities start to shine through, which were always there, but nobody ever appreciated life, the quality of life, physical life. So the love is here. It's really here all the time. You know, we spend so much time saying humanity is screwed and we have to awaken and all of this. But actually, humanity is awesomely loving creature. The love that is there among humans is tremendous. The uh, passion to do good is tremendous. We're in an evolutionary process where we are very much caught in the suffering of having a mind which is too weak to liberate itself from uh, the dictates of fear. That was a speech, wasn't it? No, that was but, good but, I, but, but I get a bit upset because we're so spoiled. We're so spoiled. And Nirvana is right here now. It's really here. And we believe with our beliefs that there's only a certain amount of love and that peace is only accessible after this and this, that freedom is, you know, only when whatever. You know, freedom is there in the darkest prison. You know, Nelson Mandela's life, maybe his whole life was a mastery of the quality of freedom. That transformation that took, there, took place there with the quality of freedom when he became enslaved. The thing you said about the woman, Stella, or Shula getting gay. <laughs> I just totally made that up. Yeah, I know. But it's a good example. I mean, what you see a lot of times here, and I'm sure around the world, is if there's a big hurricane or a snowstorm or something like that, everybody comes out and starts helping everybody. There's this brotherly <laughs> love emerges, and, and people are just going totally out of their way to, to save people and help them and yeah. feed them yeah. and clothe them and, and everything else. Yeah. And it's, it's only when things get back into the humdrum routine that people yeah. kind of get back into their limited 
perspective. Yeah, yeah. Isn't isn't that worrying? Because it looks like that's what's needed. Yeah, and obviously there must be a way of enlivening it in a much fuller and abiding way other than catastrophes. <laughs> you know, it would be nice if it became the norm without having to have hurricanes and snowstorms and other kinds of desperate situations. So that's a, that's a key question is how do we unlock it and enliven it not only within ourselves but in collective consciousness so that yeah. that becomes the norm. Well, you know, our education, you know, the Dalai Lama spoke just recently about how uh, we need to really begin teaching our children an education of the heart. We're educated from the head uh, with knowledge, dead knowledge, you know, to really, really bring to the new generation an education of the heart in which they learn to feel their feelings and to uh, be truthful to what is experienced, even if it seems out of place. This would already make a big difference. But at the same time, behind your question is a whole kind of sorrow about the need for suffering. And it comes from a very compassionate place, but you know, it's worthwhile then to look at what is this suffering really about. If you look at our own lives, you know, what effect did suffering have on us in the deepest possible way? Me, deepest possible way? What is this suffering? It, How did it, it affect it was us? Did it bring us down? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, and it brings insight and it shows us where we're not free. And it deepens our compassion and our empathy for other humans who are suffering. Yeah. You see, I really don't believe in private enlightenment. I don't think that it, you kind of get off the boat and say, I'm separate now from your humanity because I'm non-dual. And, and humanity is still suffering, but I'm not. Most of the enlightened people get, that we yeah. regard as enlightened didn't behave that way. You know, they became yeah, exactly. universal citizens sort of once, yeah. the, once the enlightenment yeah. dawned. And the Buddha actually started that way. He started in the, in, in the palace, at least the story of Siddhartha. You know. So he's surrounded with unconditional non-dual qualities. He's got all the riches, all the abundance, everything is taken care of. And there is an impulse that makes him leave the palace and to go out into the world and to begin at meeting suffering and then trying to understand suffering. So there is something, you know, if we were in a state of non-dual quality all the time, which we were before we were born, there would be a need, an impulse. Maybe it's an impulse of compassion or an impulse of care or because we are one to incarnate because we care so very, 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 very much about each other because we're not separate. You um, use the word evolution quite a bit. For instance, you say non-dual qualities are evolutionary. And the point I often make in these interviews is that I feel that there's a evolutionary trajectory or agenda or something built into the fabric of the universe, that the whole thing is just one huge evolution machine. And if you look at it in that context, then... Suffering is not capricious or arbitrary or cruel or you know meaningless. It must, in the biggest picture, have some kind of evolutionary significance or it wouldn't have happened because everything does. And maybe what it is, is uh, the evolutionary effect of suffering is in the opening of compassion. And compassion is the wisdom of interdependence and the wisdom of unity. And I, I tend to feel that's the true non-duality, is the wisdom of interdependence, the wisdom of unity. Uh, compassion is not something that, that we should do and behave nice to each other. It's something that arises by itself. 
spontaneously as an impulse from the depth of our own source. It's probably a reflection of the degree to which we actually do experience the oneness of everything. You know, if, if we truly experience our neighbor as ourself, then we're going to behave differently than if we experience the neighbor as some kind of distant, estranged person, different mm-hmm. from ourselves. Yeah. Here's another relevant paragraph from what you uh, wrote in your book. You said, our connection with a non-dual quality can be forgotten, obscured, confused, or deri- denied. Yet yeah. the quality remains at the depth of ourselves regardless of changes in the way we connect. We are literally mm-hmm. unable to negate our true nature. We can only temporarily obscure it. We've kind yeah. of covered this point, but it's nicely written there, so I thought I'd read mm-hmm. it. Yeah, so, so an example of, of a quality which people don't talk so much about, two qualities. Which one do you want, innocence or purity? Oh, let's do them both. <laughs> so innocence, you know. There's not many people waking up to the uh, everything is innocence, the pure, absolute flow of innocence, that every single aspect of experience is inherently innocent. And to get a feeling connection with innocence. You know, I had a client recently and she said, we did this whole process. She's got a very strong guilt complex. And, uh, and of course, accusation towards the world, because guilt and accusation go together. It's the guilt is too painful, so we say the world is bad. The world is wrong. And either I'm wrong or the world is wrong. This is the contraction around innocence. It's frozen innocence, which hurts like hell in the chest. And so we worked with innocence. And we worked with innocence in a sense of the innocence of her consciousness just touching the energetic contraction, the constriction in her body, wherever there was a stress response in the body, touching it with the attitude of innocence on her consciousness. And there was this kind of domino effect of innocence, 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 innocence. And uh, at the end of the process, she said, I always thought innocence was the same as compassion, but it's not. It's something, it's a completely different felt sense. It's a whole vibration of itself. So this quality right now tends to come forward in people very, very strongly when they suffer because animals are suffering. Because there is this quality of innocence inside animals that when innocence is suffering, it's absolutely agony for us. Because that's partly what's happening inside ourselves. So that's a quality which isn't very often talked about with enormous healing effect. Uh, Innocence isn't for suckers. It's very potent. It's not for children, you know, like, oh, children, childish, innocent and all of this. But it is uh, one of the most powerful qualities, the unveiled qualities of the universe alive in every single human being. And what do we do? We say, okay, it's guilt, guilty or innocent. It's either or. We bring it down to this level of this feeling of inherent badness. And we say it's a competition between this and it's either you're guilty or you're innocent. You know, the, the prisons are full of people who are, will always be, have always been and will always be innocent and who are caught in the contraction of guilt and accusation at the same time. Mm. Well, you know, Christ said, except you be as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven, meaning innocent. And mm. um, in that sense, I, I think of the opposite of innocence as complexity, guile, subterfuge, Pretense. delusion, you know, just sort of, yeah, kind of putting all kinds of unreal, complicated superstructures on top of the simple naturalness of life and thereby obscuring, again, the word obscuring, our true nature, because we, yeah. we've kind of muddied it up we've, with, with all sorts of complications. Yeah. We've very much forgot that we are innocent. Yeah. 
Marshi used to talk about pure consciousness or pure awareness as the simplest form of awareness as opposed to sort of more complex, convoluted states. Yeah. And simple also is, implies innocence, just getting down to pure yeah. simplicity. And so, you, see, you see that in the eyes of someone like Ramana. There's a sort of childhood resting in pure innocence um, yeah. as yeah. opposed to the eyes of Donald Trump <laughs> or someone. He has actually quite a strong quality of innocence. If you connect to innocence in way, inside yeah. Donald Trump, it's, it's in the idiot as well in him. You know what I mean? He's like, he's serving a certain purpose and he's innocent in it. Yeah. If you don't look at his personality, but you look at the quality that's coming, he's very direct. He says what he thinks. I don't, I'm not in any way a Trump voter. I think he's an absolute nightmare. But <laughs> there is quite a strong quality of innocence there as well. Yeah. Aside from the fact a lot that, of people, he, that he's it? lied 10,000 <laughs> times since he took office. Um, but I know what you mean. Oh, yeah. That's the thing. A quality is absolutely unconditional to our behavior or to what we do or to the guilt that we carry. Or, or, and then guilt has nothing to do with having done something wrong. We are all born with a guilt contraction because this is the state that humanity is in. And since the Garden of Eden or before, or because we're not enlightened and we got reincarnated, we all have this burden of badness, the sense of badness inside the psyche. It's encoded in our DNA. You know, just as they found the biochemistry of stress hormones, they will find the biochemistry of guilt. And how it plays out through our blood, through our bones, through our living experience. Every baby is born guilty at the same time that it is sublimely innocent. And then at a certain stage, this sense of badness can become unbearable, just unbearable. And so we begin to throw it out on the world by behaving bad. And we are allowed to do that because the world is bad. So we kind of start this kind of guilt and accusation contraction. And then, of course, we get condemned back by the world and it reconfirms the sense of guilt and the sense of badness. And all the time, what's there is this innocence that never gets lost. Really, it's there. It's hard for maybe for people to get that babies are born with guilt complexes. But, you know, if you look into the epigenetics, if you look into the kind of traumas that pass from generation to generation, more often than not, it's connected with a contraction of guilt. Yeah, I think it says in the Bible someplace the sins of the fathers are visited upon the sons or some such thing, you know, that we inherit the, the, yeah. the kind of the traumas and stresses of, of previous generations. We live them firsthand as if it's our unique, only individual separate experience, as if it's new. The same themes of abandonment or rejection or, or desolation. Yeah. One point we can get on to in a minute is, um, you know, how to clear up the sort of ancestral karma, so to speak, in addition to our own load. Maybe we should touch upon it right now while we're on the topic. Do you have anything to say about that? I think it's very, 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 very healthy to not see ourselves as separate from our ancestors to start off with. Let's be non-dual about this. You know, every single molecule and cell in our body, every strand of our DNA is inherited. And, the, and our DNA and our personality, our eye color, our body structure, our traits, our uh, skills and talents, it's all what we think we are as a separate thing. It's not separate. It's all an inheritance. And it's an inheritance of an inheritance. Humans inherited it from our animal ancestors and from our mineral ancestors. And from... So, first of all, whatever we are experiencing now, it's not separate from our parents. And it's not separate from our grandparents. And 
it's not a reason to isolate ourselves as if there was something separately, individually cursed about me. It's not. It's part of what we came into as a job when we took human form, when we showed up in human form. It's part of our contribution in, in resolving some of these conflicts, in taking care of what couldn't be taken care of by our ancestors and by our environment. We are doing a service to our ancestors and the ones that come after us and our environment. It's part of our purpose. So already there, we can take off the guilt and the shame, at least about being fucked up, because it's what we're working with. It's our raw material. Yeah. I think both the Native American and the Vedic cultures talk about seven generations, the ripple effect through seven generations. And um, I know that um, in the Vedic, which I'm more familiar with than the Native American, it's said that when one becomes enlightened, it, it sort of has this major impact both going forward and going backward for seven generations on yeah. your relatives, your predecessors and forward, your ancestors. It goes backwards and sideways in the here and now towards too, the whole environment absolutely. and your whole species. Huge wave, yeah. Let's talk about that more. But um, first, there's a question that came in from Barry in Spokane, Washington. He said, do you think that at high stage of enlightenment or awareness, our connection with unity awareness can expand beyond, this relates to what you're just saying, can expand beyond our experience and merge with the awareness of others, thus feeling their turmoil and frustrations. It seems that some masters like Ama, Maharshi, etc. are able to tap into the reality of others and share some tangible encouragement or loving embrace. This would point to the capability of awareness to expand to every part of the human experience with the implication for reincarnation and growing human awareness. Yeah, I think it's kind of what he's asking is relating to what we were just saying. Mm -hmm. And it works both ways. I mean, these sages are much more acutely sensitive to what others are experiencing, but they're also much more potent in radiating an influence towards others. We don't have a separate awareness. It's one field of awareness. The only thing that separates it is our mental filters. I remember Barry, is he called Barry? Barry. So I remember watching my parrot, my baby parrot, who was watching my dog who was eating. <laughs> and as the dog was eating, the parrot was going, nom, 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 <laughs> yeah. So we have this thing in naturalness, we have on both sides of the brain and, and, and in the middle, we have mirror neurons in which we naturally experience what the other is experiencing. So that's not just like eating dog food, you know, It's also to the depth of empathy, you know, uh, they have been called empathy neurons. Of course, if we don't use them, we lose them. So the more we are able to relax in the idea that I am separate and I have to know what's mine and what's yours and uh, where I begin and where you begin and uh, this this idea of separation, the more that becomes not an issue, meaning the, the filtering mechanism of this is not mine, the repressive mechanism on the brain is not happening then the, the more we're able to experience natural empathy without it upsetting the whole nerve system. So you can clearly know it's not yours, it's the other person's, because we allow the experience in totality and it's full of their essence as well. You can feel the essence of the presence of the other person in, in the particular brand of fear that you're experiencing. So, but what we tend to think, we have such a fear of having to defend ourselves that we kind of close down our natural empathy. It's a natural empathy, it's not a psychic ability, although, you know, we'll get there in a couple of years, you know. So... The more we don't close down our natural empathy, the more it's very, very clear what's coming through what body and through what history. But we're able to experience it together completely with another human being, what they're experiencing, as if it's our own. 
And all of this is just experiencing happening within an awareness which is always never divided. My awareness is the same as Rick's awareness, it's the same as everybody else's awareness. The only thing which is differentiated is the nature of experience. And that's not so different either, half the time, especially when we're talking. Some people say they become kind of hypersensitive, so they can't be around crowds, can't go to Walmart, you know, something like that, because they're just picking up on everybody's feelings and thoughts and stuff. Do you have a, any comment yeah. on that in terms of yeah. being able to integrate so that you can mix it up with people and be open and wide open and yet not be undesirably impinged upon by other people's you know, stuff? What people are doing, they're not becoming hypersensitive, they're returning to naturalness. And there's nothing about Walmart which is natural. <laughs> it's fluorescent lights. It's a bombardment of messages and colors and people with their me-first trolleys and consumerism. And it's very upsetting in naturalness to experience that. It's not the people themselves. If you take those people and you sit under a tree together and you kind of enjoy nature and you sit in silence a bit, after a couple of hours, they're not going to be a problem. And anyway, you know, we have to, all those people in Walmart that are caught in consumerism, they're in our field all the time. You know, you must have had sometimes when you go to sleep and it's like the whole world is talking in your head. And you have to kind of retune the radio into the kind of channel silence because this busy mind, and it's not your thoughts, it's random, like all kinds of different frequencies of people just talking into the emptiness, you know, uh, that maybe you passed in Walmart months earlier in the day. What's being described here with Walmarts is the sickness of our society at its fulcrum. Consumerism, there's this kind of consumerist monster which is hypnotizing us and eating the planet and creating, creating, creating without any, any responsibility for the destruction that happens. We're quite right to feel bothered by it. Well, I used Walmart as a case in point. I could, have, I could have said, you know, going to the state fair or something where there's people are having fun, but there's a lot of people. And, you know, some people yeah. just find that they can't be around anything like that because yeah. it, um, they feel too porous. They feel, yeah. you know, too yeah. impacted by everything. Yeah. So I guess the, the question is, you know, does, is that characteristic of uh, enlightenment or could an enlightened person be, you know, nice and integrated in such a way that he or she could function normally yeah. in such yeah. circumstances and not, not be overwhelmed by them? Yeah, it's absolutely possible to walk into a battlefield and into Walmarts and into a beach and to be in unity with the environment, even a, a very angry environment without losing our own center. It's absolutely possible, but it takes time. Yeah, in fact, that was the advice in the Gita. Lord Krishna was saying to Arjuna, well, you've got to fight this battle, but first get established in being and then do it, and then you'll be okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you'll have equanimity, you'll, be, you'll do the right thing, etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was something we were talking about earlier I wanted to ask you or comment on, and, uh, or both, and, and that was we were talking about different qualities that one might experience. Um, some, you know, some might experience more bliss, some more freedom, some mm -hmm. more you know, wisdom or something, different qualities as awakening dawned. And uh, we're talking about it in terms of the predominant experiences you had been having before awakening dawned. But I think there's also a physiological consideration, different nervous systems having different qualities and different predominances of you know, let's say we could speak of it in terms of the, the gunas, some more tamas, some more rajas, some more sattva. And it's said traditionally that um, 
according to that, according to the condition of the nervous system, one might experience enlightenment quite differently. Um, one might regard the world as an illusion, other as, others as just plain material stuff, others as divine. Some might experience bliss more, some more vastness or freedom and all. Um, so, you know, same realization in a way, same liberation, but different orientation to it according to our neurophysiological makeup. Well, the nerve system is part of, is a, in so many ways, the way the nerve system is encoded, it's partly uh, conditioned by our environment, meaning by education and by what we've been taught. Like, be afraid, that you have to be stressed. But it's also uh, encoded out of, out of our cellular inheritance, from our ancestors. Like, you know, watch out for men, they only follow their dicks, you know, this kind of thing, you know, it's like a encoded not to trust the opposite gender for example and already maybe being programmed the nerve system could be learning that inside the womb you know a baby inside the mother's womb can hear what's happening outside and if every time the father's voice shows up the mother's blood rushes with cortisol uh, and with stress hormones then the baby is going to go into stress and associate it already there with the sound of a male so that stress response in the nerve system, for example, is going to play out as a first reflex every time a male's voice is heard. And it will be translated and interpreted into distrust and into beliefs like you can't actually really trust males. They, uh, they fail, fail male. You know. So that's just one example of uh, the genius of the nerve system. But the nerve system is so malleable it's such an obedient animal it takes a little bit of time but it can be trained and when the nerve system gets a sniff of true nature that actually if you relax inside a conflict that this peace comes forward and this peace is really yummy and that the whole system is actually fed by that then the nerve system starts to kind of anticipate it and look for it where's the peace where's the peace you know it's very, very, very agreeable to uh, true nature. Once true, the energetic vibrations of the qualities like love and peace and togetherness, even as a thought, are introduced. It learns like a rat that gets an electric shock. Like the, now the rat gets a cookie when it touches the bell. It learns that this is good news. Yeah, that's a very good point. The whole idea of spiritual practice over a long period of time it ties in with the notion of neuroplasticity and the fact that the brain actually can be changed and the nervous system enjoys the types of rested, natural, profound states that spiritual practice can elicit. Yeah. And yeah. so it begins to take on those states as the, its normal style of functioning as opposed to just yeah. a momentary experience. Yeah. And one way of looking at the development of enlightenment is the acclimatization of the nervous system to, that, to a new style, a new more natural style of functioning to the point where it just becomes perpetual rather than momentary. You could also think about it as, you know, because we think about the nerve system often as turning outwards towards outer stimuli. And I really like to think of the nerve system as being like part of the nerve system of the universe. And as such, it, it's responsive. And I think this is really true to experience. It's, it's responsive to inner adventures as much as outer adventures. In fact, there's no difference between the two, which means that as we relax in meditation, and the body begins to relax and we begin to trust relaxation because remember every trauma happens when we trusted relaxation. So we have to get over that and begin to trust relaxation again and our naturalness. And as we begin to relax, then the senses begin to open. 
right? It's, if something's like this, then uh, it can't you can't receive it. The eyes are like this, the ears are like this, everything's contra contracted. But as we relax, it begins to like open the sensory perception like a flower. Now these senses, and that for a while in the meditation training can be, oh God, I'm distracted, 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 until we realize that these senses also are opening inside ourselves. There is subtle sight, there is subtle sound, there is subtle vibration, there is subtle sense of touch, there is subtle smell there is this whole incredible dimension of subtle experience available to our senses which is also extremely yummy to the nerve system yeah it's nourishing. not boring the nerve system doesn't like boring sometimes it, it likes it sometimes the parasympathetic okay let's rest and digest but it also likes a bit of excitement when you know when, when golden buddha shows up in your meditation the nerve system is like cool you know <laughs> you hear the divine music you know it, it's too much it will close down the whole show and you know you know what I mean? It's, uh, so the nerve system is working both ways. And we vastly underestimate the power of our and the sensitivity of our nerve system. So, yes, when we go to Walmart, it's a drag. It's like going to an acid house discotheque. You know, it's not our cup of tea. But when you go inside, the possibilities of what we can sense, the refinement, and we can get to a position where you take any, any old raw, sordid, dualistic emotion like jealousy, and you can begin to sense it. Through the, through the nerve endings, through the body, but in its refinement, what does it feel like, this energy of jealousy? What's it really made of? Oh, it's a little bit like alcohol. Now, what, it, what is it really there? What, it stings. It's strong. It's vicious. It's, in the, it's amazing what there is to explore. So that, that, that stage inside-outside collapses and life becomes a kind of meditation in which the nerve system is just yummy, 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 yummy. Yeah, no, I, I understand what you're saying. Um, yeah. Irene says that enlightened people can shop at Target instead of Walmart. But I don't know if she wanted me to read that. <laughs> don't send me these things if you don't want me to read them. <laughs> or you have to put, don't read. Um, I mean, if I think about my own experience, I can remember, you know, 30, 40 years ago, if I went into the Walmart or something like that, I'd, I'd start to feel jangled after a while and say, oh, I got to get out of here. It's too unnatural. No, I just feel comfortable. I mean, I wouldn't want to yeah. live there all day or hang out there all day, but it's sort of like it. You just build up a, an inner reservoir, and it doesn't matter as much, you know, whether you're in a fluorescent light place or out, out in the woods, although you prefer the woods. But if you have to be in the fluorescent light place, then, eh. Yeah. So often when we're overwhelmed by external stimuli, it's a sign to us that there's not enough space on the inside. And it's very, very worthwhile to, create, to, to explore inside and to realize how much space there is. Because when we begin to access that vastness on the inside, the kind of conditions on the outside become less of a problem. Mm. If you think back to where you were in the late 90s when you were strung out on cannabis and coffee and contrast that with the way you feel now, um, I mean, if you, could, if you could like step instantly from the way you were functioning then to the way you're functioning now, do you feel like you'd have just like this huge relief because your natural style of functioning is now so, so relaxed as compared to that? It's absolutely inconceivable that the, you know the diff, you know I can recognize that that is the same one that was experiencing that and which is experiencing this. This mm. I can recognize, and that immediately puts me in a state of timelessness. Yeah. But back then I was an explosion in slow motion. There was the psychic part. There was the intellectual part. There was the pain, the the traumatized part. I was just exploding in slow motion, and I think that it was also. The nature of my coming to Israel and the whole uh, 
subject of Jews and gas, you know, because I partly came because of the Holocaust, because I was so impacted by just the history books as a child. And it was like a karmic chapter closed, uh, together with the death of the personality, uh, with the nervous breakdown, connected with the misconceptions about good and evil, about survival, about Second World War. Something was closing. And I even had this dream at the end of that process that these two guides came and gave me a certificate, like job well done, you know, like out of the blue. And this was before I was, you know, back into all of this funky stuff. And at a certain stage, I was lying there on the floor of the kitchen in total and absolute nervous anxiety and the drugs weren't working, the psychiatric drugs, they were just making me like a robot and everything was imploding, the whole physical body, like I'm dying, just not knowing at all, just no, nowhere to go anymore. And I, and I had this vision of these two figures coming across the field and one of them was, uh, uh, it, was a, it was a man and a woman, but I kind of laughed in the vision that the man was dressed as a nun. This is going to make sense one day. <laughs> I already get a smell of it making sense but and and the other one was dressed as a woman and uh, they came towards me and as they came towards me there this kind of two spheres of white 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 light silvery lights began to expand out of them and include me in it and then I really felt like I was going to die inside this light and then I jerked away towards my son my firstborn son and touched the rock I had a very strong connection with the rocks in the Carmel mountain I touched the rock and then woke up but the charge of this experience was like a total and absolute reset. And for me, that is like where my second life began. It's like I died in that moment and I could have died, but I picked up a whole new chapter with this body. It's fine. Yeah. Partly because of the connection to my son. Do you feel that your nervous breakdown, the whole sort of collapse of your life was um, in retrospect a good thing? I hate to use the word good, but it, it's sort of you needed to be disassembled completely before you could be reassembled in a much more desirable way. It would have been Absolutely. hard to, 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 be, to get to where you are now without that uh, disassembly. Absolutely blessed every moment of it. Uh, in every sheer horrific moment of agony, uh, it burnt down this arrogance to the ground. Uh, it means that I really get fear and anxiety and stress. And this experience meant that I could really study that the whole book of non-dual therapy is based on the understanding of stress and contraction and friction and conflict. None of this would have been possible if I hadn't been to uh, Timbuktu and back. <laughs> yeah. And, and seen the whole personality burn down and see that I'm still here. So it really helps you as a therapist, in addition to having helped you as an individual, you know, restructure your life. But you're able to actually relate to probably just about anybody who comes to you and tune into kind of their level of pain because you've been there and done that and yeah. then and then help them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of quite an important area because... I was very much eaten, almost very close to getting eaten up by the psychiatric establishment who heard me talking about bin Laden and non-conventional anthrax terror attacks on America in 1998 and thought that I was one of these end of the world freaks and that I should be locked up immediately. And the drugs that they first gave me were, were serious antipsychotic drugs right. and uh, from which there would be no way back. And they threatened me. They said, if you don't take this, you're never going to get well. And luckily, because of my upbringing, when somebody threatens me, that's it. I don't do it. <laughs> and so I didn't do it. I stopped smoking grass, which they didn't know about, because that's probably the cause of the psychosis, the, the marijuana. 
and uh, I'm not saying that people shouldn't take medication, but often I get clients who are on the edge of taking medication like lithium, and they've been diagnosed bipolar or whatever. And I know there is no way back from that. It's like a death sentence, a life sentence and a death sentence because it destroys the kidney after 10 years. So it's, there's not a therapy in place to kind of work with bipolar. It's very hard to work with a lot of these psych psychological disorders when the f capacity to feel has been limited. Because, yeah. So the capacity to feel, feeling the feeling is absolutely fundamental to restoring harmony in the psyche and balance and freedom and naturalness. So when we take drugs which are, uh, 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 limit our capacity to feel, to reunite with our deepest pain, the things that have affected us, the traumas that have formed us, then our, it's like putting us in prison and throwing away the key. Our ability to heal is actually delayed for a very, very long time. Yeah. And sometimes it's possible to catch people just before that before they get on this tread treadmill, because a lot of the, the, uh, the, the psychiatric drugs being pushed on people have incredibly awful withdrawal effects as well. So much so that uh, the people think that they're, that's the craziness underneath, but it's the, the withdrawal the effects withdrawal, which are, yeah. are playing out. I remember so, some therapist, it might have been somebody I interviewed, it was several years ago, I remember hearing this, the, the guy said, if he was going to prescribe some drug, I mean, it might have been Thorazine or something. He said, well, I'm going to try it once uh, so that I can experience what my patients are going to experience if I give them this. And after he tried it once, he thought, no way, I am not giving this to anybody. <laughs> this is horrible. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I took one of these antipsychotic pills and my arms went up like this. Huh. Just because of some weird reaction. And there was no relief whatsoever from, no, that's how, that's how a lot of people react. It's like you become robotic like almost immediately and it had no effect on the anxiety, no effect on, the, on, on, on what I was in. Uh, it's really tragic. I think there's probably a lot of people in psychiatric hospitals. My mother was in and out of them throughout my adolescence and taking a lot of these drugs um, who are actually very spiritual people who have had some sort mm. of spiritual breakthrough or something, but it's just not integrated and they're diagnosed yeah. as crazy and they end up getting just pushed down into a hole with, the, with these drugs, whereas they really need some kind of spiritual guidance that would enable them to go through the metamorphosis. Yeah, yeah. They need togetherness and belonging and someone to listen to them. It doesn't matter to what they're saying. You know, it's not that they're not mentally ill sometimes. It's that the drugs don't help. So why give them drugs that are addictive and that have incredible effects in withdrawing, which destroy the kidneys, when it's not actually helping and you're locking them up anyway? Yeah. Well, a lot of people who are actually mentally ill are also very spiritual. And yeah. we, don't, we don't want to just say, sort of say all mental illness is spirituality, but spiritual transformation can be very unsettling, and you can go through a lot of intense stuff. I mean, I can look at, back at periods in, in my life when I was pretty darn nutty <laughs> going through some yeah. long meditation course or something, and you just need gentle guidance through these phases and, and you know, not the sort of crude, completely um, uninsightful suppression of whatever is happening through some biochemical means you know we have such a strong fear of insanity in our culture you say in your and book actually that back in greece they didn't distinguish between insanity and spirituality because they never they weren't so sure they could and so they kind of treated all such people with respect yeah yeah and 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 you know so much uh, uh what we would call insane is created by people attempting to be sane 
meaning repressing their anger, denying their trauma, not uh, trying to be somebody other than what they are because they've been so seriously rejected, pretending to love their mother when their mother is totally abusive. So pretended sanity is a form of insanity which creates a lot of personality disorders. You know, the whole paradigm of sanity and insanity is a judgmental shame fest uh, where people, you know, it's an insult to call somebody crazy. It's so terrified. It's so cowardly. It's so unaware. Uh, you know, when losing my mind, this psycho when it was psychotic, because at a certain stage I was psychotic, I was never more lucid from another level. And it was such an important experience for me because I got insight, added insight into the nature of mind. Before that, I thought I was invincible. And I saw how not only my mind, but my patterns of behavior, my social context, everything can get totally lost. And I could see it in real time. I was there crazy, but I could see what was going on. And I was getting insight totally as to how this works at the same time. So sometimes things start to play out on life. And then when there is shame delivered on, the, on that and exclusion and judgment, we should be grateful for the insane people for doing that on behalf of the rest of us. So much of freedom of mind depends on our moving beyond the fear of insanity. It's only the mind. It's only thought programs. That's all we're talking about. Also, insanity is kind of a relative term, isn't it? Isn't everybody in, in the world insane to some degree compared to what's possible? To some degree, everybody, we have an insane society and an insane culture, yeah. insane leaders. My goodness. Insane systems. What's called insane is actually moments of clarity and lucidity. And I would, you know, count myself among them. I mean, compared to what is potentially possible, I must be yeah. insane because I'm not yeah. totally there yet at the apex of human possibility. The mind is just a receiver. It's a receiver of information. And sometimes the information that it's being asked to receive is just too unbearably painful. There's a layer of pain inside, which is just not, we're not able to contain it. And then the mind does all kinds of stuff to try and block it to try and evade this area of feeling, the unfeelable, the, the forbidden, the unspeakable. Remember the unspeakable traumatic mantra. So are you pretty busy as a non-dual therapist? Is that mainly what you do yeah. aside from raising 10 kids? I uh, do a combination of non-dual therapy and uh, teaching. We teach a lot. We have a lot of workshops. We have this whole uh, spiritual psychology education which is a seven-year process, but it's divided into three, and each module stands by itself in which we work with natural duality, energetic points in meditation, uh, in order to set the, set the stage that, for uh, experience of our subtle nature to emerge and for, to escort people through a process of self-healing in this way. It's quite a beautiful system which, by degrees, does that training of the nerve system, which we were talking about earlier, and what you see in people is they move from a place of uh, really not being themselves, being this, to flowering in their individuality. And I know that's a very non-dual non thing to say, but there is this thing that happens with spiritual liberation and the liberation of the heart where people become more awesomely unique and individual and pricelessly beautiful and special than they ever would have been pretending to be somebody else. Absolutely. Here, here to that. If you think of the 
paragons of spirituality that humanity holds up and respects, they were all just such charismatic, lively, unique, you know, interesting, expressive people. I mean, they, yeah. they, they weren't plain vanilla by any means. They were just like bursting with, with yeah. personality and creativity and charisma and, and all such qualities. Yeah. And it's not a paradox. When it comes down to it, not it's really all. not a paradox. No. But we do seem to be moving into an age of spiritual individuation like that. And if you think about it, look at the tropical rainforest where the the ground is so fertile and look at the fecundity, the the diversity, the the expression of all plant life there and animal life. Uh, So if we we live in a world in which the ground of being is is lively and we're all connected with it like that, why shouldn't the whole world be like that in terms of people's liveliness and expressiveness and so on? Yeah. And, and, you know, this is where we get confused. We get confused between diversity and differentiation. Like that every single moment of even my finger is unique compared to the previous moment of my finger. It's one second older. This incredible dice of diversification and differentiation that happens through all of nature and through every moment of experience and separation. We think that makes us a separate self and that means that it's not good, but it's... And, and that somehow non-duality is becoming that robot. It's not like that. It's, it's being totally free in this uh, ocean of diversity and uh, differentiation. According to what law is not the individual law, but it's whatever is needed in the moment happens by itself. And that means that we don't also don't resist action. Exactly. I think it's fair to say that true non-duality nourishes its individual expressions and makes them more ever so much more so you know it it frees them from that which causes sameness actually from you know (laughs) allows them to just flourish and you know we have this kind of faulty belief system that we think that in order to belong we have to be the same as each other it's the exact opposite of differentiation and diversity, that we all have to look the same, we all have to believe the same, we all have to have had the same journey and there's the same teaching and these are the same. This is a conformity, and conformity is what so often robs us of our inner truth and our inner authenticity and our inner authority. It's got absolutely nothing to do with belonging, because the moment we start conforming how we look in order to belong, meaning we pretend to be somebody else, in order to belong, then we have rejected ourselves. We don't belong. You know what I mean? We, 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 we're filled with a sense of lack of not belonging because the one that we're putting forward as us isn't who we are. It's a conformed image. Two things I would say here. One is variety is the spice of life. It's a well-known yes. saying. And the other is that conformity is not how God rolls. You know, I mean, yeah. if you just look at nature... God is yeah. not into conformity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he or she yeah. is into explosive expression of, yeah. of diversity yeah. and creativity yeah. and all that yeah. stuff. And all, and all within yeah. a, a non-dual totality, because that's yeah. what God is, is that non-dual yeah. totality. And that, that's certainly there in the Jewish mystical traditions and in the Islamic mystical traditions. To the extent that on the ancient Islamic floors, you know, they will, they will have one tile of this beautiful mosaic floor, which is done backwards, which is imperfect. Oh, I see. Uh, Yeah. 
because it's that little break in the perfection which is the momentum of of of, of growth of creation of change of uh, evolution you know is there's no perfect rose although we all know we can feel we can sense the the template of the rose the subtle template of the rose, but each individual rose is beautiful because of its slight imperfection, its slight differentiation, its slightly varying shade of color or scent. A grain of sand creates the pearl. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> well, I guess we better wrap it up. This has been fun. Yeah. Yeah. What I'm, a pleasure. <laughs> I'm sure there are many things we could have talked about that we didn't yeah. because it always goes that way. There's only so much you can do in a, in a two-hour period. But uh, I think people have gotten a nice taste of, of what you're about. And uh, yeah. at some point, you know, not too far down the line, they'll interview your partner, Bart, also. And yeah, and he can, nice. he can talk about everything I forgot to talk about. Yeah, and, right. and, a lot take more, and, and a lot more. And a lot more. Cover well. all the stuff he didn't talk about. <laughs> but anyway, Georgie, it's been, it's been great talking to you. It's a pleasure, Rick. Thank you so much. So let me just make a couple of wrap-up remarks that I always make. I've been talking with Georgie Y. Johnson, and I will be linking to her website and her books from her page on batgap.com. So you can easily find her website from that. And uh, through that, you can get in touch with her. And if you want to engage in the thing that she, uh, the things that she's been talking about here, and I, I imagine you can do that with people all over the world. doesn't matter where they are, right? And Especially it, we have uh, workshops coming up in America, in Virginia uh, in August, and in England next week uh, in Bradford-on-Avon. So and it's a combination Israel, of some online stuff and some in-person stuff? And online they, online uh, clinic all the time. Uh, and between that, there are, there are ongoing workshops, uh, which are spaced like every six months uh, in America and Holland and Israel and England. Great. And then also they can find out more about non-dual therapy on a one-to-one basis if, they, yeah. if they're if they interested in that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. So I'll link to all that, and you can get in touch with Georgie. So thanks to those who've been listening or watching. I have an interview next week, but the following week I'll be speaking with a Sufi sheik, 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 I don't know how you pronounce it, <laughs> in Germany, who was originally a German, but there's a fellow who... Um, had been sending us all these recommendations for different Sufis that I should interview. And we said, well, pick the best one. So he, he picked this guy. So um, that'll be fun to explore. So thanks again, Georgie. And, and thanks to those who've been listening or watching. And we'll see you for the next one. Donate, donate. Oh, yeah, right. Okay, do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Bye, Rick. <laughs>